You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So good afternoon everyone and welcome. It's become a bit of a Friends of Europe tradition that the day before International Women's Day we hold an event which celebrates the role of women in a sector. Uh, last year we did disaster relief, humanitarian aid. Many of you were there. And this year we're looking at a very crucial issue as well. It's women, peace and security. Now if you look at the world as it is today, great power rivalry, wars, conflict, confrontation, the refugee crisis that we see everywhere, um, it becomes very, very clear that we need another narrative, another way of looking at the issue of conflict and war and confrontation in today's world. So we have the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, which recognizes the role of women in security in building peace and managing and stopping conflicts. But its implementation, I think, has been patchy, to say the least. And obviously, given today's landscape and environment, we really do need to do more. Um, please do take a look at our online publication, our fact sheet on women, peace, and security, moving from international resolutions to national resolve, and you'll see just how much of a gap there is between the resolutions, the international commitments, and what's really done by governments when they go home. It's really quite a poor story. It's a sad story to tell. So do go ahead and look at that. It was uh, written by my colleague Sarah and by Osama, our, our intern there. So what do we see? Just very briefly before I turn to the panelists, we see that on vital issues of negotiations, peace negotiations, which hopefully follow uh, wars, uh, women are rarely present, even though they have such a crucial role to play in society. When it comes to crafting constitutions, women are rarely present. The figures are in the fact sheet. Um, and the role of women, their influence and their presence when it comes to counter-terrorism or counter-radicalization efforts is also very, very limited. So we have to actually change that. And that's why we thought it was necessary, important to hold this panel discussion, to talk to four experts, leading experts. Many um, have, have really on-the-ground experience of what it's like to live in societies and to empower women as well. So uh, I'm Shada Islam, Friends of Europe, a director for, Pol uh, director for Europe and Geopolitics. And if you look at the um, quotes that we have up on the wall, you'll see that Debating Europe, uh, which works very actively and is part of Friends of Europe, has had a conversation online on security, peace, and women. And we have Anne from Slovakia. Please do read these. It's very, very important, these questions. I think they really uh, reflect what people are thinking about. So Anne from Slovakia says, women need to be meaningfully included in preventing violent extremism because we are 50% of the population. But how do we do this when women's rights and rights in general are backsliding in so many countries? Robert from United Kingdom says, do you think money currently spent on defense budgets would be better invested in peacemaking and peace educating activities, including those led by women? And Ina from Ireland, excuse my pronunciation, uh, would, uh, would promoting gender equality really make a difference? Wouldn't women just create the same problems as men? Perhaps establishing better checks and balances on power, whether held by men or women, would be a better approach. 
So I'm going to turn now to our panel, introduce them very briefly, and then ask them if they want to respond to any of these questions. So on my right, Claire Moody, European Parliament Vice Chair of the Subcommittee on Security and Defence, and Rapporteur on EU Fund for Gender Equality. Claire, you also sit on the Committee on Foreign Affairs and the Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality, and you worked as an advisor to Gordon Brown in the UK as well. So welcome, welcome here. Uh, Bruno Nazim Baroni, he's uh, Head of Monitoring and Evaluation at AFSI Foundation, which is an international NGO, uh, Italian NGO, and he's based in South Sudan, where he works on monitoring uh, projects to do with women and security, supporting local peace committees. Uh, Makiko Kubota, uh, is a uh, senior advisor on gender and development at the Japanese International Cooperation Agency, JICA, based in Tokyo. And thank you very much, Makiko, for coming here. You've been involved in uh, empowering women police officers in Afghanistan, among other areas. And last but not least, least uh, Sandra Olker from GIZ. She's an advisor on security, peace and security, and disaster risk management. Thank you very much for being here as well. So, Claire, let's kick off with you. You said you wanted to uh, try and react to the third question, which is, would uh, having women in power in this peace and security uh, sector really make a difference? You have a microphone here. Lovely, thank you. And uh, yes, although uh, I think the end of that question was also, should there be checks and balances on, every, on all policymakers and power you know, uh, involved in the, this and every process, in my view? So yes to the checks and balances, but absolutely to would, would involving women make a difference? Of course it would make a difference. Women are the people that quite frequently are in the first line of impacts when it comes to uh, conflict, when it comes to, uh, you know, for example, you mentioned the refugee crises that follow uh, conflict. When you look at the outcomes of women in war situations and in war zones, then you absolutely have to have women's voices in there, respond, uh, standing up for the very specific issues that affect women uh, in these circumstances. And if you don't have a women's voice, if you have people speaking for women, or all too often, if you have male voices talking about conflict issues with very much the conflict in mind and not the outcomes of the people involved and particularly the women, then the issues get ignored. It's not just that you are have people speaking on your behalf. So, and there is some, you know, kind of statistics in relation to this that there is not enough research in this area, but where there is research, you get very clear differences of outcomes, you know, that, uh, where women are actively involved, for example, in peacemaking processes, then the likelihood is that there's a 20% increase in a peace process lasting two years and a 35% increase in it lasting five years. So where we have data, which is not enough situations, then you know, there is proven difference as a result of involving women. In, the, in these situations. That's right. So, Claire, just a, a follow-up on that. So, I've talked about the international commitments, and you've said there is proof, and, you know, we've all read it, that involving women in peace negotiations around the table does make an impact. Absolutely. Why, then, are we not doing it? 
<laughs> and then again, it sort of also goes back to the point, that the, the, the first question that you asked or that was asked uh, by Aina, and again, my apologies for getting the pronunciation wrong, uh, but it is that point about who is involved in the processes. Why are we not doing it? Because we haven't had enough women's voices out there being engaged, being actively involved. You get isolated examples. Colombia is a, an example, the peace process that has happened in Colombia, where you have had women actively in, you know, brought into the peace process, where you have a gender subcommittee involved in the peace process, where there has been a recognition of the involvement of women. And a little closer to home to both the questioner and myself is the Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. And again, with that, it was the involvement of women and again, it's about the involvement of the communities because women are also standing up for the communities involved and for the families and for the impacts beyond the direct, you know, kind of militarised impact as well. So... There are so many reasons why uh, the women should be involved, but the reasons why we aren't involved frequently are because we aren't there in the official positions originally. We aren't there in um, the defence sectors enough. That's why I was very keen to take on this role in the Security and Defence Committee in the Parliament, because we don't have enough women's voices in this. You look around at defence ministers... You, and the gender profile of defence ministers, you look around at where you see voices. You know, it's been 35 years since that UN resolution involving women on, uh, in peace, uh, peacemaking processes. Your point entirely in the introduction, where, where have we seen the change? And we haven't seen the change because we haven't had enough of us and our voices involved in the decision-making processes and the outputs, I think as you can probably tell, could go on a lot longer. But, but I'm going to just <laughs> push you on one thing. So you said something key, which was actively involved. So one has to make a special effort, in a sense, sometimes, to bring the women in. It doesn't happen automatically. Um, but to come to the EU, um, can we be going further in our you know, global outreach, in our global strategies? Should the EU, European Union go further than what's been done in the, uh, in the UN framework? Uh, the answer is self-evidently yes. <laughs> but I think we also ought to uh, reflect that actually I am quite proud of the EU's inclusion of gender in a lot of areas. So I, I, I don't think yeah, we should, that should go unremarked that there are explicit gender um, kind of points in EAS activity in work that we do, for example, with refugees. And again, of course, I would say this, wouldn't I? But the Parliament's been quite vocal in making sure that there are uh, that there is a gender perspective in that and indeed in budgeting in general. But absolutely, we have to do more. Absolutely, we've got further to go. It is self-evident we have further to go because the outcomes show we have further to go. Uh, so completely there is more we should be doing. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, let me turn now to you, Sandra. So on this issue of peacekeeping, women in peacekeeping, women around the negotiating table, um, what is your experience? You've been doing work with the GIZ on these issues on the ground in several countries. Let's have yes. you. 
Yeah, well, um, having worked in that field of peace and security, especially peacekeeping for several years now, it still strikes me to admit that it's well known that gender-based violence and discrimination kind of hinder the establishment of peace and human security especially. On the other hand, it's less known that including women in peace negotiations and even um, doing security sector reform in a gender-sensitive way can contribute to um, yeah, diminish discrimination and gender-based violence. There's kind of a gap in this logic. Um, it's also from my experience that women are often also seen as victims in that field of peacekeeping, not as active players. And this is also kind of overlooked, even in the field of development cooperation, in my opinion. So thanks to Resolution 1325, there are more projects, especially in involving more women in peacekeeping negotiations. But that's my observation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there. There are less projects in involving uh, women in security sector reform projects. Um, we as GIZ, we do uh, some SSR reform projects, and in our project there's also gender components. Um, anyhow, it's a smaller field than in the peace negotiation projects, um, which from my experience as well is that this whole field of security sector reform is still kind of a defense security playground. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, for men. And especially also the development cooperation field is less engaged in the security field because it's not their topic. It's still relatively new and some um, development cooperation actors are kind of hesitant to deal with security <coughs> actors. So I think there's a chance to get um, together better. Brings me to the question of defense budget or um, peacekeeping or development cooperation. I think it's not a question either nor. It's to bring coherence for both topics because I think only by playing together or bringing projects together we can fill that gap of, sen of gender sensitive um, security sector reform. Can, can you give us some uh, examples of where you felt that you've achieved something positive in this area? Yeah, well, um, I used to work for the Eastern Africa Standby Force, which is a multi-dimensional peacekeeping force in Africa, but military-dominated. So um, what I saw there that, um, of course, there was the um, aim to bring more women into this organization, either on security actor side, police, or also on civilians. Um, however, what needs to be changed, um, I think, is that um, it's important or um, let's say it that way, um, if, you have, if you want to have more women in peacekeeping operations, the member states, um, um, they need to switch from the ministries of defense who are actually the, in charge of sending um, the, the people or the women um, because they don't know actually um, whom to send. We had that example that we asked for female civilian peacekeepers approaching the MODs, and what we got is um, the cleaning lady and the storekeeper. I think that's an example um, which is sad, but it's kind of reality. And starting there to sensitize and to do awareness raising, what do we need? How do you actually build capacity in the 
um, institution which are in charge. That's the starting point. You just can't tell we need more women because people in charge, they just don't know how. It's like we are asked to send a major to somewhere and we are not military. We don't know how to plan military missions. So I think this coherence to bring both organizational cultures together is something um, which we actually need to build up on. Right. Uh, so, Sandra, you know, Claire mentioned the fact that there are very few defense ministers uh, who mm. are women, but Germany does have a yes. woman defense minister. Has that made an impact? Has that changed the culture? Has it brought more women into, into the security sector reform area, etc.? Do we see change? Um, well, I think I, I can't say from that. It's, it's, um, yeah, it depends also on the whole context, but I think um, women just... Um, bring other skills into the whole topic. Um, thinking about peace negotiations, um, and I don't want to think in, in, in boxes actually, but um, um, they are less um, striving for power or they are just more a little bit more calmer in some situations. Um, it's just um, that they just deal in another way with the whole um, negotiation skills. So I think they bring new ideas um, and dynamics into the whole processes, which might help. New ideas. Okay, let's uh, stick with that uh, thought. Uh, so, Makiko, let's turn to you. Thank you very much, Sandra. So let's turn to you. So Afghanistan has been... How should I put it? In a state of tension and conflict and uh, unease for a very, very long time. And many international donors are there. Everyone's trying to help in, uh, in ways that are quite different, but, you know, trying to synergize their activities. And Sandra just talked about the need for women peacekeepers, civilian women peacekeepers, and you've been working on women police officer reforms in, in Afghanistan. Why did you decide to focus on that, and what have you seen as the as the results of your efforts? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I think women's uh, participation and lead, uh, leadership in security uh, sector reform is important because it uh, improves the operation of security institutions by creating more diverse uh, security services for the, uh, for the people of different backgrounds and experiences. And also, as Claire said, it is also important to particularly uh, to protect and ensure the safety of women and girls. Um, just let me explain uh, my experience in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, uh, security, uh, sec 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 uh, sorry, security sector reform, especially police reform, have been considered crucial, and various efforts have been made towards, uh, to achieve this. And recently, gender-responsive police reform, such as including, including more women in policing, has been also promoted. Um, in Afghanistan, where gender segregation is culturally entrenched, uh, female police officers are particularly needed. To, uh, for house searches and also for uh, interviewing female residents. They are also needed um, to search women at checkpoints and also to, to provide security uh, to women at female-only uh, space and meetings. And because, in fact, um, in Afghanistan, there have been repeated incidents of men disguising themselves as women under burqa and try to gain entry into where areas where they carry out attacks. So female op uh, police officers are also needed to prevent such incidents as well. And at the same time, um, they are particularly needed to address sexual and gender-based violence. 
violence against women in Afghanistan, such as domestic violence, child uh, marriage, sexual assault, and honor killings are shockingly high. And significant challenges remain to protect and pre uh, ensure the safety of women and girls. And women in Afghanistan are often deterred from reporting crimes against them due to social norms and taboos. And, most beco and, and because most women and girls are often uh, not allowed to approach male officers. So even when women do report, their cases are often ignored, not properly registered, and are rarely uh, prosecuted. And um, so although violence against women is illegal, but their cases involving um, crimes against women uh, are typically resolved through communities, uh, informal communities resolution me um, uh, mechanism, which where cultural norms are applied, and in many cases, uh, sentences imposed are detrimental to women. So, um, in, and, oft, and also, uh, such as um, sexual harassment, no, uh, sexual assault, and honor killings are committed by the police themselves. So, in that sense, female police officers are particularly needed um, as first responders and mediators for those cases uh, uh, for, women, for women in Afghanistan. But, however, uh, um, despite some progress, women police officers, uh, women uh, represent only 4% of the entire police uh, force in Afghanistan. And women in Afghanistan uh, face significant obstacles, both in entering and in serving effectively. Um, in the uh, patriarchal uh, society in Afghanistan, uh, women face opposition from uh, the community and their own families to joining the police force, because police work is often considered to be in uh, inappropriate. Uh, for uh, culturally, culturally inappropriate for women because it requires working closely with men and also it involves late night work. And for women that do join, women police officers face discrimination, sexual harassment, and targeted violence from male colleagues and also from their own communities who do not view policing as a respect respectable job for women. And all these issues decrease the effectiveness of the female police officers' role in policing. Um, I'd like to talk a bit more later if I have time, but um, women who uh, have recently become police officers in Afghanistan, um, they are active change agents for peace and development. They, came, they come from a different background, but many of them have uh, a strong desire and a sense of agency to contribute to community security, often specifically recognizing community mediation, education, and protection of women and girls as a um, key component of their role. So these, and their, these perceptions and the desire to contribute to, to community security are often a reaction to challenges they have faced personally as women. And so I strong, strongly believe that supporting these women will create a positive change uh, for a more um, equal and cohesive societies where women and men can uh, live peacefully without oppression, discrimination, and violence. And we all know that real change comes only from within, and we, uh, women themselves and also the men around them. So I think uh, in this sense, uh, I think these women are, are the hope for the future in Afghanistan. That's what I feel. That's why I think I'm trying to um, support them and I'm currently involved in a tiny, tiny uh, program to support these women, police officers. Makiko, can I just ask you, thank you so much. That's a really inspiring work you're doing. And the game-changing aspect is very important, of course. But how many women 
are there in the police force at the moment? How, how many are there? Do you have any idea? Ah, uh, yes, 3,000. 3,000? Approximately. 3,014 or something. In the, in the National Police Force yes. in Afghanistan? Yeah, at 4%. Okay, uh -huh. well, that's uh, I think quite a remarkable change compared to a few years ago. Exactly, uh, uh, but in 2013 it was only two percent. That's right. Mm, so the number is increasing at the moment because the government and international community is trying to accelerate the number. Okay, so that's uh, a good news story in a, in a sense. Thank you very much, Bruno, uh, man on the panel. Uh, Let's turn to you. So AFSI is engaged in quite a lot of community work uh, in, in South Sudan, in Joba, etc. And you're working quite a lot on ex countering extremism, radicalization. What do you see as the role of women in, in, in the projects that you are working with? Thank you for Please take the microphone. Thank you for the invitation and then have a chance to talk uh, to you and also allow me to uh, speak about a specific uh, point in case. I think uh, by providing you an example uh, of uh, the kind of work that we do as AFSI in South Sudan, AFSI is an international uh, Italian NGO that works in 30 countries. And uh, it, most of the things that we talked about uh, today actually uh, become self-evident and uh, they provide a good example. So, uh, for instance, uh, the main, uh, the main uh, uh, claim that I want to make with, this, uh, with my contribution is that indeed women do have uh, a role, whether they like it or not, in, uh, as, as uh, Claire said, uh, f the first in the line, actually. And uh, before, during, and after conflicts, uh, at the local level is very evident. And uh, they do play a role in minimizing the possibility for a conflict, in uh, almost sabotaging that conflict, and uh, even in recovering. Just uh, to give you an example, I don't want to get too much into detail, but it's it's, it kind of gives uh, concreteness to what we are talking about. Uh, so, for instance, women indeed, in a place like San, South Sudan, they are the most, uh, they tend to have a relationship across communities. Because actually when they marry, they go with the community of the male. So very often, they have part of their family in one community and the other part in the other community that they are fighting with. Because in South Sudan, there are many conflicts at the same time. Some of them are intercommunal findings. And actually this is really, that's been the backbone of why the conflict has spread all over the country and not just uh, uh, regionalized in a specific area where the conflict is uh, actually occurring uh, around oil and other, and other interest. Um, so, so the women do have, uh, actually they do stand for the communities because they do have relationship across communities more than men of course they then they of course they bring a different point of view if uh, they don't speak just for their own community but they speak also for other communities that is uh, self-evident and uh, so other things that is important to remember is that uh, uh, sometimes they sabotage uh, the, the conflict in the sense that they do hide young people they uh, both of their community and other communities they do bring something specific because, for instance, uh, they have less of a problem of uh, warriors' lack of proudness. Uh, so they don't have a problem in reaching out to the other community and saying to very often young people, please go back to your home. This is not going to help us at all. Uh, whereas men, they actually have more of a problem in making such a step. Um, plus, uh, uh, so there are, you know, I could carry on actually. Um, one other important thing, let me tell you, very often these uh, fightings starts 
as a result of uh, gender-based violence that occur uh, in, the com in the context of a conflict. And then out of this, it happens a reaction. So the, the, the community will strike back. And so for sure, women do play a role in the sense, if they like it or not, in the sense they are the one defining what happened and they are the one who have a little bit of a voice of what to do uh, as a res in response. And if that should or not include violence. That is even more important when it's not just a gender-based violence against one woman, but it's a, a group of women. In that case, they do have potentially more of a role in uh, addressing, in specifying how we should deal with this problem. So these are just uh, some examples of, uh, that I can draw from uh, looking at the, the, the experience uh, in South Sudan. Um, we, uh, the, the, the other things that I wanted to highlight very quickly is that, as I said, there are different conflicts at the same time. So there is not one, uh, one single intervention that can solve everything. And uh, very often what is needed is a, comp it's a, uh, say a mix of uh, things you know, above uh, and at uh, the international level, but also at the community level. And because also uh, it is at the community level where women are whether they like it or not, involved in these dynamics, uh, and where they do experience, uh, sometimes they empower themselves uh, and they learn how to do it. How, because otherwise, the risk is that uh, some women, sometimes they, they are invited in certain negotiations, but they don't have the experience, the skills, uh, to actually play a meaningful role. Um, that's so what I wanted to, excuse me for sure. interrupting, that's what I wanted to push you on. So how easy or difficult is it in, let's say, more traditional societies, communities, to actually then pinpoint and select the women to play uh, a game-changing role, if you like? How difficult is it to actually approach them and bring them out of a traditional environment? Right. Um, I wouldn't say that it is, it is um, that difficult. Uh, very often, as I said, it's just a matter of going there and looking where they are and seeing the struggle they are going through. And you will figure it out that there are some group of women that are actually trying to reach out to the other communities that are hiding uh, uh, young people uh, to prevent them from joining the, the militia and uh, all other things. I can plenty of examples. For instance, women have played a role in denouncing where army where the, where the weapons were hidden uh, during uh, disarmament uh, processes. And because also they have, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, say, uh, informants uh, networks uh, that are somehow different than, than men. And uh, uh, so actually you, it's, what I'm, my answer is they are there, and uh, it's just a matter of going there and notice, noticing uh, their role. Of course, then a completely different question is how do you, give them enough a room to empower and to raise at the national level. That is a completely different story. And what is the story? <laughs> <laughs> what um, is that story? That story, uh, it's, it's more difficult and I have less to say mm -hmm. because as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, South Sudan is not an exception. Uh, women do have a very small role. What, uh, what I can tell you is that when we ask to, you actually, I'm, I'm coming up, now and telling you all this after focus groups with some women we work with in South Sudan and they have an association at the local level and um, they pointed us to something which it might seem 
trivial, but actually maybe it's not. Uh, they said that as long as the women, as women are not empowered, even in other domains, even at the economic level uh, and other level, it is difficult to think that they might have a strong and important role in the peace negotiations. So that's why I want to, I'm trying to advocate for an approach that is uh, incremental, step-by-step uh, step from the local level that address also economic domain uh, because at the end of the day, even though it might take longer time, that is really, more, probably is more realistic than other, other sort of interventions. Mm. Thank you very much. That's why we thought it was quite important to bring in uh, information and experiences from Afghanistan, from South Sudan, and from, uh, from the ground of what's happening. Because here in Europe, we tend to focus very much on what the EU is doing, what, what we are doing. But I think what is happening in, in these regions is very important. So Claire, I just wanted to turn to you again before I open the floor. Uh, do you think there, there are lessons there, for instance, from the story about women being empowered to uh, work in counter-radicalization, counter-terrorism, uh, about having more women in the police force, in the army? Are these the kinds of things that we can actually learn from other countries as well? Yeah, absolutely we need to learn. We need to learn from the experience uh, in Afghanistan, in South Sudan. I, I found it very interesting what you were saying about uh, the experience in South Sudan of when you find the women, you know, the, uh, they're there. They absolutely are there and they are already doing a lot of work within families and within communities precisely for the reasons that you have made, the points that you have made. But we have to be conscious of putting the framework in place. You know, th th that's where the, the link is between that helicopter position here um, supporting the work on the ground is that you know, we've got to make sure that we're, that we're helping that happen and making that happen. But yeah, th there's a lot of steps between that we've got to work through as well because we, it can't just come from Brussels to a community in South Sudan, as you rightly said, we've got to work through <laughs> yeah, the, the layers in between as well and facilitate the women fulfilling the roles that they know that they can play, uh, magnifying their voices. Mm -hmm. the, uh, right. Sandra, do you want to come in on this? Um, may I steal oh, sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, this is, um, yeah, from my experience as well, very, very important. Um, what I learned, though, is that um, it's not only empowering women is, is also pretty difficult. I mean, just putting a woman in a room doesn't make her a gender expert. And just because there's a woman um, involved in peace negotiation doesn't make it gender sensitive. So, and it's not only about... Um, the technical knowledge you have about a uh, peace process in Mali or wherever, it's also about empowering um, with the necessary skills how to maneuver and ne navigate in that still male-dominated surrounding to get a voice and to get heard, actually. So I think um, that is sometimes missed. Um, we do capacity development technical knowledge-wise, but that you actually need the skills to, um, to bring that knowledge into the process. That is something um, I think we need to focus on more. Thank you very much. So I'd like to now turn to, to all of you. You've been listening. Uh, I'd like to take your questions and comments. If you could just put your hand up 
uh, one of my colleagues will come to you. Please identify yourself, and then uh, let's take it from there. Lots of experience here, and uh, I will turn to... So the lady in, uh, in red, uh, Osama, or uh, Sylvia? Saskia, sorry. Thank you very much for the invitation. My name is Irune Aguirre-Zabal. I'm the, from IOM, I'm the head of the Policy and Program Division. Um, just one comment first, because I used to work for UN Women, and uh, just following on the last comment, and also the MEP's comment on uh, women in defense, maybe first, um, Michelle Bachelet used to say uh, that um, before she became um, a Minister of uh, Defense, uh, she realized that uh, only when she was appointed Minister of Defense, she had been mi before Minister of uh, Social Affairs and Health Issues, I believe. Only when she was appointed Minister of Defense, she really was perceived as a potential candidate as president. So it's really true what you're saying. It's really the uh, perception of power has a lot to do with that. <coughs> and also being you know, able to maneuver in that surrounding uh, that uh, you mentioned, so that's just to add to, to that. And I wanted to just bring um, a, few, uh, a few reflections on women migrants and, and refugees as well. Um, because this is also an area where we need to have a, a gender perspective, and I wanted to bring some, some ideas. Uh, women migrate as much as men. 48% of the migrants are women. 118 million, uh, about, approximately, are uh, women migrants. Um, and one of the things we believe must be done is that uh, data needs to be disaggregated by sex and by age, so we really understand who is migrating and why, and, what, uh, and we can prepare also for the responses that are necessary in that field. Uh, migration, we know, that can access, uh, provide access to uh, education, to health services, and to economic resources that are very uh, important to women. Uh, female migrants and refugees, as you said at the beginning, are mostly perceived as uh, subject to abuse, and it is true, and they are more subject to abuse um, than, than Mary. The, that men, uh, they are at greater risk of exploitation and uh, mainly uh, of trafficking, as we know. Also, we know that highly skilled women have high rates of uh, migration, but they end up in uh, jobs that are low skilled. And we also know that unskilled female migrants work uh, mostly in the domestic uh, area. And we also know that uh, migrant women uh, provide a lot of support and sustainable development to their uh, families and their homes because they send uh, a higher uh, percentage of remittances back home than male do. So the reflection I wanted to bring and with this I end is that it is crucial to understand uh, the uh, gender in interaction into migration and to provide for adequate responses and the difference if you do it or not when you implement a project on migration is that you actually succeed to provide for non-discriminatory legislation and services, etc., or you do not. So this mm. is... Can I just ask you very quickly, but given the sort of messy and rather mixed up, muddled response that we've had in Europe to our so-called migration crisis, are any of the things you're saying being taken into account as regards the special sort of um, requirements of women? Well, I think this is building up. I think, uh, as the MEP said, this is building up, and, uh, but we need to do more. 
uh, as well. So this is building up and is in various documents and the, the gender perspective is it's taken in the into document. But I think we need to be working much more. And one of the main issues is data disaggregated by sex and by age. Right. Of course, okay. and the policies accordingly to do that. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, David Fouquet, just please put your yes. Let's see. Just keep your hand up, David. Um, yes, David Fouquet of the uh, CERIS uh, Graduate Studies Program at the Free University. This may seem peripheral or irrelevant, but we all react to media, images, narratives, and so on. Uh, does the fact that there's been so much prominence uh, given to uh, women fighters in the Kurdish forces change the dynamics in any way? Does it change the perception of the participation of women in the combat spectrum and therefore in the solution or in other roles? Thank you very much. I don't think it's a peripheral question at all. I think this has been very much in the headlines uh, when we talk about foreign fighters uh, as, as a new development, as an uh, intriguing development. Would anyone in the panel like to take that issue up, uh, Sandra or Claire? It's an interesting point. Does it change the perception very much? I'm not sure it changes the perceptions that much. I was genuinely surprised last week when we were voting on a report on funding of jihadist terrorism. And uh, one of the... I mean, we shouldn't take these people too seriously, but um, uh, there was an ENF response to the debate trying to change the report to one being about uh, brides coming back and that they shouldn't be included. And it was... So it took me so spectacularly by surprise that this was kind of where they were going with this. That there was this suddenly the far right are trying to demonize women who, in my view, are more often than not the victims in these circumstances as well, you know, uh, underage brides and this side of things. So that their attempt to bring women into the problem from that, you know, into that negative perspective, which is why I mention it, because they were obviously trying to shift some kind of uh, image on that side of things. But in terms of... I'm not sure how that it deeply impacts on the assessment of the, the conflicts with having women fighters in that, that particular kind of set up as such. Uh, and I think it would be perhaps... I mean, it's much more important, in my view, that we, we focus on the women in the, the, the situations and in the communities uh, than start going, well, actually, there's something different about the armed forces because they have women in them, you know, fighters of whatever description. Mm -hmm. so yes, please. Please, please. Um, I want to tell you something and see if uh, we change our perspective on something. So uh, maybe folklore, but it's, uh, I think it's, a, it's uh, interesting. Uh, apparently, women do play a major role in uh, insofar they compose songs to their men, 
uh, where they actually solicit them to take revenge against uh, the other community. This it used to happen. It used to happen much more often than now. Now, it apparently, what we have been told is that women started to actually compose songs of peace rather than uh, than the others. This is, I'm saying this because uh, you see, maybe we are not thinking to what extent actually women do have also a negative role sometimes, uh, and uh, to what extent also women can contribute in changing their behavior. And uh, so again, it goes to what I was saying before. If we dig a little bit, then we will see, as it happens in the Kurd example, that indeed they do have a role, and uh, sometimes even more folklorist maybe, but um, interesting that we might expect. Songs of Peace sounds like a very, very good idea, actually. Thank you very much. Lady, I'll come to you. Lady, yes. Lady over there. Um, yes, yourself. Could you just put your hand up? Yeah. Uh, everyone gets a chance, but your hand was up first. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, can, can I just ask you to pass the, the, the microphone further up to the lady ah. with the... I'm sorry, it's difficult to... Can you put your hand up? Yeah, there you go. Um, I'm Anna González, working for the government of Catalonia here in Brussels. And in fact, I'd like to address a general question on authority given to women. If I think um, from the perspective of cooperation development projects and the gender approach, women need to be identified as both agents and beneficiaries at the same time with specific indicators. So from your experience in the field, what is there apart from skills, which is objective training, for them to be given authority, which is related to power as a form of discrimination in the society, and which I think it's far more difficult to, to address and put in a paper, and I mean in a project with a specific variable. Right. Sandra, would you like to take this? Yeah, I can um, add on that. Um, yeah, as I said before, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, from my experience working in the military organization, what helped me is the specific development cooperation knowledge, which was an add-on for them as a peacekeeping um, organization because they had the military and police knowledge, but not the humanitarian or civilian knowledge. That was one point where you can actually um, add on. On the other hand, it's important to um, know or to how to... Um, for women in higher positions, how to achieve that power, I think it's especially important to know what are the important stakeholders in that field, what are the networks, how are you doing your coalition building, all these kind of skills you need to get a foot into the whole system, um, which are sometimes skills you can't do by trainings, you just can't do by um, yeah, learning by doing in a way, knowing the surrounding and having maybe mentors, etc., who bring you into this, this whole thing. And it, one thing is clear, it doesn't come from now to then. It takes time. Um, but I think it's a longer process um, which is worthwhile, where you can then um, use your specific knowledge on certain um, topics even better because you're finally be here, heard and then you can bring it in. But it's nothing that happens short term, unfortunately. So no overnight, and it's, I think this is what we've been saying at Friends of Europe. We have the momentum now to really, we have to capitalize on it and use this opportunity to press ahead further on all the issues that you've, you've raised. And uh, Makiko, would you like to come in on this issue? 
Um, okay, I'm not sure if I can um, answer your question directly, but just uh, let me share my experience working with uh, women police officers. Um, it was actually 2014 when we requested to support women police officers. But at that time, we had no idea who they are. So we uh, actually conducted a study to explore the uh, way to effective, effectively uh, support these women. And we are um, targeting approximately 390 police uh, women who were participating uh, in a basic capacity building tra program in a police training academy in Turkey. And 93% of them uh, were newly recruited police, of police officers, and 7% of them were currently serving uh, police officers. And through the study, we found out that the majority of the women were uh, from economically vulnerable households, but uh, these women were motivated uh, to join the police force not only for the pressure of economic survival. Um, we found out that a significant number of women proactively chose the police work to finance their own education and, and to develop their professional career to achieve future goals and ambitions such as becoming a pilot, lawyers or doctors, etc. Um, in fact, um, they are more highly educated than Afghan women overall. Currently, uh, police officers in Afghanistan are required to have a high school diploma as a minimum requirement. But uh, more than 60% of the surveyed women had already, um, were currently enrolled in college or had already graduated. And so, Given the limited professional opportunities for Afghan women, police work seemed to have been a viable option for these women to continue their, their education and achieve their uh, future dreams and hopes and ambitions. And we also found out that a significant number of women um, uh, responded that being a police woman had been their dream since childhood. Um, this motivation was um, especially present among women whose immediate family uh, members were in police. And some of them also emphasized their determination to carry forward the legacy of their family members who had been killed in action in the security forces. And also, we were quite surprised that many women who joined the police force with a strong motivation to work for a women's peace and security, driven by their personal experience. Um, for example, a 27-year-old woman told me that she had been successfully learning a beauty salon as much as earning $2,000 a month. But she decided to join the police um, force uh, after witness, witnessing sexual and gender-based violence, uh, which uh, many of her past, uh, customers suffered in the community. Um, in fact, about 30% uh, of uh, women cited justice for um, female victims of violence as one of the most important reasons for joining the police force. Um, so anyway, so I found out that there was such a strong sense of, have a such strong sense of agency and active change agent. But at the same time, it's important to mention that there is a vulnerability in the sense of their, uh, uh, how can I say, in the sense of their agency. We found out about 49% of uh, women police officers themselves had experienced sexual and gender-based violence in one way or, or another, including domestic violence, child marriage, and rape. And many of those women survivors continue to struggle with uh, their traumatic experience and become psychologically vulnerable to some extent. 
So in this context, I think, I'm not sure if I can um, answer your question directly, but in our intervention, in, our, in the capacity building uh, of those women, I think it's very important to include actions to heal their trauma. Mm -hmm. Because it should be not uh, only in Afghanistan. I think it's a similar things which is happening in other conflict fragile countries. Yeah, so, um, but, so, and I think so, we, our interventions to support the capacity building of these women should involve actions to heal their trauma and to, to transforming them from being a victim to a, uh, to a supporter. Because um, if, so for example, if women police officers themselves are psychologically vulnerable, um, it would be difficult for them to provide appropriate, appropriate assistance to support other women. But if we empower these women survivors, they will be effective um, in providing protection and support for um, other survivors of violence. And they can be also a powerful driving force to uh, create a society where women are not silenced, can raise their voice, and can participate equally. Um, so. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, so, so mm. these are real lessons that can be actually replicated in, in many other regions uh, surrounding Afghanistan, in fact. Um, so, Makiko, I'm going to take a few more questions and then we'll come back to, to the panel again. So, uh, I had the lady who I grabbed the microphone from rather rudely a few minutes ago, and then I'll come to you, and then there was another hand that went up there as well. Yes, please. Uh, merci beaucoup, madame. Donc, je m'appelle Bichi Loalois, je suis des Asbel. Uh, sorry, excusez-moi, je ne suis pas sûre si tout le monde ici sur le panel comprend le français. Donc, uh, est-ce que vous pouvez le poser la question en anglais? Oh, ok, ok, ou posez-le en français, je vais, je vais traduire. C'est gentil, madame, merci. Okay, mais l'ordre, ça doit être court, excusez-moi. Merci beaucoup. Ouais. Bon, c'est à propos de la situation en RDC Congo, où, euh, qui a été qualifiée de capitale mondiale du viol, il y a particulièrement au Kassai où des femmes sont violées publiquement et aussi il y a deux employés de l'ONU qui ont été tués là-bas, mais depuis il n'y a pas de, euh, de justice, il n'y a aucune démission, il n'y a rien qui est fait, c'est comme s'il n'y avait rien eu quelque part. Là-bas les gens souffrent beaucoup, c'est surtout les femmes qui souffrent de toute cette situation parce qu'elles sont violées, on les met dans des... des fausses communes et euh, elles sont réfugiées dans les pays voisins, etc., etc. Donc, le pouvoir qui est là ne veut pas quitter. Or que tout le monde veut l'alternance au Congo. Mais le pouvoir s'accroche et tous ceux qui veulent l'alternance sont tués et réprimés dans le sang et il y a beaucoup de femmes qui sont victimes de cette situation. Madame, est-ce que Alors, vous avez euh, une question pour... Parce que je dois traduire oui, madame, tout ça ma, pour ma la panel. Ma question Donc, oui. est que c'est vrai que, bon, il y a M. Guterres qui doit aller au Congo bientôt, en mars ouais. ici, il y a une résolution qui doit être adoptée bientôt là-bas pour le Congo. Alors, euh, je voudrais que, voir qu'est-ce que vous, vous pensez de cette situation parce ouais. que nous, on a l'impression qu'il n'y a rien qui bouge, c'est toujours la même chose depuis des années. Voilà, on voudrait voir qu'est-ce que vous, vous pensez et qu'est-ce qu'on peut faire pour le Congo. Ok, voilà, merci. Merci. merci beaucoup. So, um, just a very, very uh, brief translation so about the Democratic Republic of Congo, the cases of rape and that there has been no accountability. And uh, uh, so what does the panel think about, you know, what to do about that? So, um, thank you very Merci beaucoup pour... Uh, votre déclaration, je crois que c'est très important qu'on en parle. Uh, let me take another, a few other questions and we'll come back to the panel. The lady over there, please. 
Uh, thank you, Vlasa Zekulic from NATO. I actually have uh, two questions that I would really like to invite the panel to discuss. One is, is it possible in order to empower women to empower sectors in which they predominantly work? So, for example, when we talk about sub-Saharan Africa, we know the women are predominantly engaged in agriculture. So by making it a bigger business, by making them stronger as the industry, makes them more relevant in societies, and I would suggest maybe to an extent increase their power or influence in the country. Is this an approach that should be considered? And second, potentially, maybe a little bit more provocative, but coming from Croatia, which is a part of the southern nations to an extent a little bit more chauvinistic, even us growing up, my generations, we were taught man is a head, woman is a neck, but heads turns where the neck moves. So in that way, as a transitional step towards the full empowerment of women, when we talk especially about the conflict zone, can we empower women to be that neck, to basically how to influence, how to educate the men to take them towards the solutions which should be. So is it point about putting the women in the spotlight or just making them turn the men where we want them to be? Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Let me take a question. There was a hand that went up there, yes? I'm not sure who went, who asked first, but yeah. Can you keep your hand up, please? So. Hi, my name is Delia. I work at the Quaker Council for European Affairs on the Peace Program. And I just wanted to pick on the word empower a little bit. Um, when we're thinking about empowering, are we thinking about giving power to women or also thinking about changing the power dynamics in which many of these situations are happening, thinking about the relationships between men and women and how those can be more balanced uh, to give women not only the space to be empowered, but also to have power themselves. Thank you. Okay, I think I'm going to turn to the panel now and then come back for, uh, for another round of questions because we still have some time. So, Bruno, I was wondering if you could take up the issue of the rape, the viol, uh, and also the points that our, our colleague from NATO made about agriculture uh, and, you know, just empowering, empowering women so the sectors are empowered rather than just the individuals. Yeah. Please, uh, you need to, to be fair. Uh, I've never worked in the Congo, although it's very close and, uh, and it's not somehow that far away uh, as a situation compared to uh, South Sudan. Uh, so I'd, I'd like, I would prefer not to answer, but I would, I would like to say that it's really important that you raise such an issue. It's important that you do it here in this country, and it's important that we keep doing it as, as for the same reason that it's important that we keep every year, probably, uh, meeting and uh, discussing this issue about women. Because as long as these, these issues are discussed, at least there is some hope. The moment we think that something is okay and uh, we give it for granted that there is not any more any challenge, uh, actually we move backward. So I, I, I want to take the, the occasion, actually, to thank you for organizing this meeting. If I may, very quickly... Um, uh, about the as I, I tried to suggest that indeed it's important to have a kind of holistic approach uh, where you address the, the political uh, power and also the economic uh, under, uh, power that underpin that political power of women. And indeed, for instance, we, are, we designed last year like a project. It's a, again, it may be folklore, maybe just a small project of uh, pig farming, uh, encouraging women to do that. We did so exactly to break down that the separation between uh, women doing farming, men doing herding of animals. So we tried through helping them to engage in some sort of herding 
of uh, an animal, that also it's, it's easier for women that are in the village uh, to, to kind of care and uh, to kind of divide that, uh, break that divide somehow. And that address, that address that question that you have to really actually work on different domains at the same level um, to, 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 to kind of more for, forward. Um, and um, so about the, the, the neck and uh, the head, if I may, very quickly, I mean, it's a controversial, of course, and, but it's nice uh, to discuss these issues. Um, let me say something. I also, when I spoke with these women about these issues, they told me, you know, our situation as individual women, uh, woman, is actually getting better. We are receiving more education, and uh, we are more and more uh, part of delivering public services to the people, whereas before they weren't. So we have a role in the public that before we didn't. So we were just confined in the family. Uh, but they said this is all at, at the individual level. Then as a collective body, we don't have much power, whereas the men do. So it is at that level, at collective level, that I'm not sure that the women can do much of a rotation of the head. That's, uh, that's an mm -hmm. issue. Thank you. Claire? Thank you. Um, specifically on the uh, DRC, uh, on the Congo, the, um, uh, funnily enough, I was talking last night with a colleague of mine, Linda McEvan, who is the chair of the Development Committee, and uh, we were talking about the Sakharov Prize winner from a couple of years ago who was the... Uh, just the most incredible man uh, who was uh, you know, uh, a doctor in the Congo and working specifically on women's issues, you know, the victims that you were talking about, and it was you know, a very proud moment for us collectively in the parliament that we were able to recognise what he does, and Linda indeed had been to visit him and his clinic in the DRC uh, not long ago and uh, talking about the continued work and we're remembering how he reduced many of us to tears with you know, the, the, actually what he is doing and uh, what the lives he is changing and the work that he is doing with women. So uh, that isn't a proper or full answer to the point that you made quite rightly about what is happening about the women who have been victims. But yeah, the, there is a real recognition of uh, you know, the work that is being done in the DRC. And I'm sure if Linda were here, she would answer more fully indeed about what we could be doing uh, in support of the women themselves more directly who have been, uh, been victims. On the other points... Uh, in relation to you know, actually very much following on the point around uh, there are things that we need to do in the immediacy when we're dealing with crises, when we're dealing with migration flows, when we're dealing with refugee situations, there are in effect band-aids that we need to develop to you know, put over the raw wounds that we're dealing with at that moment. But there are very much longer-term things that we must be investing in as well. And that is absolutely around um, economic empowerment. It's around, you know, and again, this is something that we do look at in uh, the work that we do through the EU in terms of supporting entrepreneurship in women uh, and recognising the difference you make when you don't 
just give agency in you know, peacemaking situations, but when you give economic agency to women, it is really, really important. And in terms of a much longer time frame, that's kind of medium term as opposed to Band-Aid, the longer time frame, I think, comes to the point around uh, gender stereotypes, really, which is you know, changing the view of women in society and our place in society and, uh, well, I mean, speaking from within EU countries, we haven't sorted that one out. So uh, we're not not a long way from resolving it across the world, let alone in our own countries. Uh, I would love that to to be the case. But that is going to be a fight we are going to be taking on for a lot longer than uh, than dealing with the immediacy of situations as well. Right. Let's take a couple of other questions. The lady over there, lady over there. Ladies, two more ladies and uh, the gentleman here. Did you also want to ask a question? No, okay, then we've got four people coming in. Please, go ahead. Um, hi, thank you. Um, my name's Heidi Riley. I'm from the um, University College Dublin. Um, I just wanted to go back to the um, discussion on um, women in mediation. And certainly at the European level, there has been initiatives that are... Um, trying to bring women into negotiating positions. There are networks, for example, you know, the Nordic Women's uh, Mediation Network, the Mediterranean uh, Network. However, I wonder who these networks tend to be populated by. I mean, predominantly, if you look at the demographic, they tend to be predominantly white European women. However, Europe uh, has a very different demographic, and there are huge diasporas of women who come from conflict contexts. And I wonder what you know, initiatives, I don't know if it's a question or a comment, but whether, you know, there should be a greater drive to include a diversity of women, women who, who have the, um, the contextual knowledge within um, a peace process, within negotiation, negotiations, and um, more broadly. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, this is not just about questions, actually, but also your comments and your input into, into a wider story that we're trying to tell you. Thank you very much, and I think uh, that is an extremely valid point. There was uh, a lady... Please, can you keep your hands up so I know exactly who's coming in? This lady over here, please. I'm coming to you, sir. This time, man takes the back seat for a bit. Please. Um, thank you very much for your uh, debate so far. My name is Chiara. I'm from uh, Make Mothers Matter Europe. And I just wanted to make a brief comment on the role of mothers specifically, um, especially in terms of radicalization. Um, we talked about facilitating women in their role, and mothers are in a unique and strategic position to serve as educators of peace and uh, resilience. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about how we can facilitate um, uh, mothers in... Um, fulfilling that role and how we can assist them and how we can also take into account the valuable data that they have from being there firsthand. Thank you. Thank you very much. There was a hand. Please put your hands up again. Sorry, I keep asking you that. Lady over there. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Valentina Barbagallo. I'm with the One Campaign based here in Brussels. Um, Thank you very much for all of your interventions. It was particularly interesting to hear kind of like some of your recommendations on some areas where more is needed. Um, It just um, kind of makes me think that, of course, some of these additional interventions require some additional funding as well. And um, so it happens that the EU is in the process of rethinking what their new next uh, seven years long-term budget called multi-annual financial framework um, will be looking like. 
And so I wonder whether there's any thoughts uh, from anyone in the panel um, on how can we make sure that some of these priorities are well prioritized um, in the budget and how to do so. So if you have any targets in mind on any specific financing rec recommendations, that would be great to hear. Thanks. Thank you very much for that question. Lady over here, please. Please keep your hand up. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm going to try to speak in, in English, <laughs> even though it's not uh, uh, easy for me. Uh, my name is Yvette. I'm from Burundi. Uh, I want you, uh, it's not a question, but I want everyone in uh, this uh, hall uh, to help. I want to call you to help Burundi. Uh, Burundi is the first country uh, to get out the ICC. Yeah, the International Court of Justice. To me, that in this country, there is no justice, there is no law, and the uh, women are killed, are raped, and uh, there is a lot of violations of uh, human rights. So, uh, before uh, getting in uh, peace and security negotiation, I want to call everyone to, to do something to help those Burundian women. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I'm you. in a uh, woman peace and security in Burundi. Uh, it's a, a movement. Uh, we are trying to to see something to do to help women and Burundian in general um, to to get out to get out of the crisis. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, gentleman over here, please. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm Dar from Somaliland, and uh, uh, you know my question is uh, very general. Uh, in fact, it has been uh, answered in a number of ways. Uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, how far uh, successful you have been in organizing uh, women organizations, civil women organizations especially in war-torn uh, countries in Africa. And whether, if you have organized, I'm sure you, you, you have, some of you have said organize it, but how sustainable these organizations have been to continue work in the areas of peace and security in these countries. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, the role of women is becoming much more prominent in some of these you know, countries, and very uh, assertive in re-establishing peace in some of these you know, countries, which is a wonderful, I think, development. Thank you. And uh, with your encouragement, of course. Thank you very much. Sir. You. Okay, Sandra, should we go this way? And then, uh, Claire, I'll give you the floor last, yeah? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Regarding the, the comment on women in um, mediation, I think that's a pretty important component in all of our projects in fragile countries. Actually, all of them do have um, components which work on conflict prevention or mediation, and especially on the local um, ground, I'm thinking of um, especially projects in the refugee context, it's mainly women who are doing um, the mediation um, and are getting the training for mediation because it turned out that they are the ones most, um, yeah, doing the, the role in the best way. So actually um, in the projects on the local level, um, we are working a lot of, uh, with women 
regarding mediation. Um, when I'm thinking about the peacekeeping context on the more the macro level, maybe the institution level, um, a lot of my colleagues, I worked in Kenya, where of our national staff were women and they were not like assistants or secretaries, but experts. Um, so, yes, there are women working in these countries in that field. However, um, it's still um, a challenge for them to get in higher positions. So there is hope and it depends as in most cases on the education. Um, but still they are kind of stuck. <laughs> so I think uh, we were talking about that before. It's still this, we are not only, um, we not only need to empower the women, we also need to sensitize and do awareness raising among the men and the male dominated culture because without the respect and acceptance on their side, you can empower women as much as you want, but you will never get into the field because they are just um, restrictions. Um, I found it pretty interesting about the role of women in radicalization context because um, it's a topic I'm, um, yeah, starting to deal with as well. It's a pretty new topic, the so counter violent extremism or preventive violent extremism. And I find it pretty important that um, this might be a field we should look more into it um, because the role of women is underestimated in there and I think we need more maybe also more budget on the kind of projects which are focusing on their role and empowering women there. Um, so it's not only about skills, they need how to, um, how to find um, radicalization issues, but also, um, I mean, you are working um, automatically with security sectors in that field. So um, I'm just thinking about a project we had in Dadaab in Kenya, the biggest refugee camp, where radicalization is a big topic. And there is a police, um, there's no female police officer because it's an outpost, so there's no uh, women in there. Um, but in order to de-radicalize, um, you need to work with the police. So how do you get both mm -hmm. together, the women and the police, especially women who are in these contexts more than um, skeptical working with the police? Um, so I think that's also um, a field of we can work more on because it's kind of neglected in the past, I think. Thank you. I think I think that 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 uh, uh, explains quite a bit of the questions that have come through. Uh, would you like to come in, Bruno? Uh, simply, you I need think to. Um, the last question. The last question by gentleman here. I'm. To, in my in preparing for this talk, I I wrote in my notes more research is needed on the role of women organizations. <laughs> um, so Anna, Anna. This, I'm trying. I'm, used, I'm, I'm saying this, in a sense, because also I want to say I don't have uh, an answer, but I think it's very interesting. And uh, just if I can comment on that, because this is also normal. Uh, you know, people get specialized in one region and then they look at that region. But it is true that Latin America offer a lot of lessons, uh, even for other other places. Uh, of course, the context is different. And, uh, but indeed, um, 
it's it's clear that uh, women uh, had a, an important, very key role. And some places are much more known the women organization rather than men. I'm thinking about Argentina, just an example. In, and uh, so uh, again, uh, there are organizations of women uh, even in other places, even in places much more uh, with much more problems like uh, countries in Africa. I'm really glad that uh, we had even uh, here an example of, of, of how these women organized uh, actually come here. And I think that relates to the question, uh, the comment that uh, the lady made. We need uh, more women off from with, with that background uh, to, to be involved in, this, in these issues. Thank you very much. Makiko, would you like to come in on some of the issues? Your final word? Okay, I also would like to um, respond to that gentleman from Somalia. Um, very, um, I think, um, to be honest, I think uh, we have not been successful um, to work with women's organizations and also uh, to work on women's and peace and security. Um, so, for example, JICA have various uh, interventions for peace building um, in conflict fragile countries, including Somalia. And we have been promoting gender responsive programming uh, to ensure women's and peace and security throughout these operations. We have various um, projects supporting women's economic, economic empowerment. And we also have been supporting uh, the local initiatives to provide effective pr protection and prevention services for the victims of trafficking and also other forms of gender-based violence. But when we carefully examine our overall interventions in state building or in peace building, such interventions, uh, which specifically targeting women and peace and security, has been limited only 6% of our entire peace building operations. And much of our support is uh, directed towards men as the main beneficiaries and, uh, and putting women on the periphery. And there have been limited programs and projects that recognize women as change agents. There appears actually to be a perception that, that, that just including or increasing the number of uh, female participants or women in leadership position is an adequate response. Um, but increasing the number of women is only one of many conditions to change the society and to improve women's lives. But it does not automatically bring about the, de the desired changes in peace and development outcomes. So we, we really need to go beyond the number and pay more attention to the content and the quality of women's participation and leadership. In doing so, I think uh, our challenge is to work more with women's organization at the grassroots level. So I think we have to do so more, and I will do so. Thank you, thank you, Makiko-san. So, okay. Thank you very much. Um, yes, and to the original question in terms of who is involved in uh, the um, uh, kind of networks, mediation networks, and uh, I think you make a very valid point around um, you know, kind of white women often involved in that situation. Actually, also quite often white middle class women so there's a class issue as well but there's um i think it goes to two ends of things which is one is on that absolute point but i think most of us when we were talking earlier and responding in terms of involving women uh we were very much focusing of women on the ground uh there is also we absolutely need the experts 
who are the ones who are doing this full time and permanently and Sandra was talking in that context as well in her response so I think um, you know, it is important that we have those experienced people but you're right that we also need to be looking at they are reflective of the you know, the communities across Europe, never mind the communities that we actually might be dealing with outside Europe as well. But we, that isn't an instead of working with the women in the communities that we're talking about too and developing the capacity in the communities as well. But I think it's both a gender and a class point that we need to remember on that as well. Um, Mothers as educators of peace, uh, this is you know, really important. And it actually also comes back to an earlier point that we didn't really pick up on enough, which is about education in migration as well and making sure that always we're keeping an eye on education um, of children in vulnerable situations because education you know, is life-changing for those children. It's the way you can intervene effectively in situations. And if you're looking at educating children, you have to engage mothers in that education process. And uh, But also, um, we've used this word a lot today, and I think it's actually a very good word for this. Mothers are agents of change. Women are agents of change. And yes, recognising that role as educators, but also as, uh, facilitating education happening within families for families. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, Yvette Burundi, uh, again, part of the conversation I was having with Linda last night, she was talking about Burundi. I, you know, I'm less aware of the situation. She absolutely is aware of the situation, but uh, I am certain there is more that we could be doing. So thank you for raising the issue. I don't have a, a ready answer for you on this, but uh, I'd be interested to know more about your organisation as well. Um, and how successful have we been in women's organisations? I'm also going to refer back, which is, um, I believe we have done some good things in relation to women's organisations and supporting women's organisations. Uh, uh, but, oh God, of course there's more to do uh, in the response. But the final point that I think is really important, and I'm not just saying that because I used to be on the budget committee, but is the point that was mentioned about the MFF, the next multi-annual financial framework. First, a detail point, which is I just saw, and some of you may also have seen, that there was a release of a reduced number of headings that we're looking at in the next MFF. And I always get a little nervous when I see things like that, there are, and indeed it was on a lot of the external action that we saw a lot of the reduce the reduction in headings, and that equally makes me think, so there's a tension in that. There's a tension in the movement of how we fund things. So there's a move away from grant funding to funds uh, and leverage and things like that, and I, again, that makes me um well I, i've had questions about that for yeah i mean it's been happening over a few years now and i'm you know always raise questions about that uh but you know just within the eu the another area where there's a reduction in the headings has been the rights equalities and citizenships where prized programs like the daphne fund sit so you know it's again looking at that which 
brings me to my sort of two concluding comments on that, which is that we firstly now need to scrutinise these MFF proposals for the specific programmes, for the line-by-line -line budget scrutiny, if you like, within those headings. But when you're dealing with budgets, it's not just, or actually in any sphere, it's not just that line-by-line -line you're looking at. You've got to mainstream this work and make sure that there are budgets that sorry, there are, that there is gender sensitivity and gender targeting within all budget streams as well so it's um, that wider point that I know I've worked with my former budget committee colleagues on <laughs> ensuring that we uh, we get into the budget as well but I think the the wrap up point is you know the point that we keep making which is We've done some really good work, and I think we ought to celebrate and be proud of the work we've done. But by God, we've got a lot left to do, and uh, that's why I'm really glad today's event has been held. Uh, and we need to do a lot more work, we need to do a lot more detailed research, but we've just got to make sure we're delivering outcomes. Thank Absolutely. You. So let me just thank you very much for that. So Claire said a lot of work still to be done. And let me just give you an idea of the scale of effort that is still required. Sarah and Osama have done this research and it says in peace process between 1992 and 2011, women made up only 2% of chief negotiators, 4% of witnesses and signatories, 9% of negotiators. The majority of peace agreements signed from 1990 today include zero female signatories. From 1990 to 2010, only 92 of 585 peace agreements contained a reference to women. I, I, I find this absolutely appalling and actually quite unacceptable. So I think really to wrap up from my side, it's not just about March 8th and International Women's Day. This is a useful reminder of the way ahead and how we have to keep pushing on the pedal. The, middle, the minute we take our foot off, there is a pushback. And we're seeing that pushback now. So let's use the momentum that we have now to press ahead with certain fundamental changes that are required, including access to more funds for the kind of work that is still required to bring gender parity, equality, and justice into a real uh, action. Uh, this is a moment of transition, and at Trends of Europe, we are really uh, looking ahead to seeing women part of the mainstream, as you said, Claire, and not just here in Europe, because we have a wider agenda, which is really about the global, uh, the global action. So I think these uh, events, and Claire and all of you, thank you so much for joining us, is to raise awareness. This is not just about March 8th. And we talked a lot about capacity building and the need for skills. And I think one of the capacities we need to really develop is the ability to be different. We are different and we should be different. And I think that is one of the skills that we often hide because we are afraid of standing out. And I think one of the things that we have to learn, all of us have to learn, is that it's okay to be different. It's good to be different. So with that, I'll uh, draw this uh, panel to a conclusion. And I'd like to thank our panelists for coming in and also all of you for your comments and your questions, but also your insights into how much we still need to do. But I think really, period of transition, period of hope. Thank you.